Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 13. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelled in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to protect what I have entrusted to him until that day. Hold on to the example of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Emma. I, I love that passage of scripture for a number of different reasons. One is it's a reminder that um, the message doesn't begin with me. The message is one I've received, and my call is to call to faithfulness uh, to pass that message on to others. But also because of the way that um, Paul calls to Timothy to remember the legacy of faith and names his grandmother and his mother. Uh, I don't want to downplay the role of my father's influence in my life. It was profound. Uh, he was an amazing disciple of Jesus from the time he committed his life to Christ um, when he was around 40 until his death just four years ago. Uh, but I also have this rich, rich legacy that comes through my, um, to me through my mother, Velma, through my grandmother, Marie, from my great-grandmother, Adeline, and from my great-great-grandmother, Frances. Uh, more about that in a few minutes, uh, but um, the, the pink shirt is, uh, is in their honor. Um, the, uh, the Bugs Bunny tie is just for me. <laughs> the pink shirt is in their honor. Oh my goodness. Um, a, a faith story in, uh, in one chapel. Uh, not possible. Uh, maybe I can offer uh, two, two brief chapters and a preface. Um, the preface is this. I, I'm more comfortable talking about my discipleship than I am talking about my faith. Uh, faith seems a, a bit abstract to me. My faith can be summed up in the Apostles' Creed. If you want to know what I believe, just go to the Apostles' Creed. But I would add this. The challenge of maintaining my faith is maintaining a belief that the way of the Christ is the most excellent way to live my life. 
The way of self-giving, the way of self-sacrifice, the way of giving myself in love is the most excellent way to live my life. To believe this so profoundly that it orders all my days, that it orders all my activity, that it orders my life, that all other goods are nestled under that supreme good. To believe it even when there seems to be no tangible evidence that the way of the Christ is working. Uh, in a few weeks, my, my wonderful colleague, uh, Keith Peterson, will direct a great choir behind, that will be standing back here in, in uh, Handel's Messiah. Um, I try to make it every year and would encourage you to be here for it. I come every year um, for many reasons, but for one is to come to that moment in the Hallelujah Chorus uh, when the choir proclaims, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. I need to believe that. I need to believe that so profoundly that it orders all of my days, even when there is no evidence, or there is very little evidence, that the nations are embracing the way of the Christ. <laughs> so, a couple of chapters in my discipleship. Chapter one, why it means so much to me that I've had the opportunity to live out my discipleship in this community. Uh, this part of the story is a very Nazarene story for me, which I, is interesting for me because I'm standing here at Point Loma Nazarene University, but I'm also aware that I'm talking to a crowd of folks who probably has very little experience or exposure to the Church of the Nazarene. That for many of you, maybe for most of you, your only experience with the Church is through this institution of higher education. Some of you preview students in your families are probably still exploring, what, what is this denomination that sponsors this college? Uh, that is not my story. Um, my story is a story of five generations uh, that have been part of this, uh, this Nazarene tradition. So let me take you back to 1915 and a Nazarene story. Uh, my great-great-grandparents, Eugene and Adeline Hicks, had moved up to Northern California to uh, search for work. Tragically, my great-grandfather died of meningitis, leaving my great-grandmother a widow at age 40 with five children under the age of 11. I can't imagine it. So much harder than anything I've been called on to do. I think there should be a picture of of, uh, of, of, there it is. There I am uh, with my mom and my great grandma Hicks. Uh, gosh, probably late 60s because grandma Hicks died in 1969. But we also have a, 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 a note, a copy, a picture of a note she wrote. We think in about 1930. Um, it's nice for me to, to realize that, like my great grandmother, I often process. Um, my thoughts and my faith through a work of art. Here's what she wrote. I, I had to edit it a little bit because this was a rough draft and I'm a writing teacher. So, <laughs> our, our, our best guess is that this was written about 1930 when she was preparing probably to do something like this, which was, she would have called it providing her personal testimony. Here's what she wrote. If ever I felt I was standing on sinking sand, it was when my husband passed away. I felt I was all alone in the big world with five small children to rear, which was too much for me. I needed help. This song was so real to me, I found help in it. 
Being a Christian, I knew that the solid rock was my savior. And at that time, I came in contact with the Nazarene Church. There, in 1915, in Bakersfield, I placed myself and children completely in God's hands. Then she writes the words to the, this verse of the solid rock, an old gospel song. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. I am eternally grateful that this little Nazarene church, it wasn't even, the congregation wasn't even 10 years old in 1915 probably not more than about 40 people. And they enfolded my great-grandmother and my grandmother and her four brothers, and they helped raise that family. I am grateful that uh, they heard the word of the gospel as it's proclaimed in the epistle to James, that pure religion is this, to care for a widow and orphans in their time of need. do not know where my family would be today had it not been for the faithfulness of that little church in Bakersfield in 1915 and the years following. I do know this, that it breeds in me uh, an incredible loyalty to the Church of the Nazarene. It's not a perfect church, and I know its flaws, I know its foibles, you don't, you don't spend five generations in a church without knowing its foibles. But I also am, am convinced of this, that I could serve the church for the rest of my days and never repay the debt I owe for the love and grace and concern that was expressed to my great-grandmother and her five children when she was a widow and they were orphans. That's, that's the kind of love that breeds a deep loyalty. So when you go from this place into a congregation and live out your life post Point Loma, whether it's a small congregation, whether it's a large congregation, you will not know. You will not know what your faithfulness to the gospel will mean to the people you encounter. You will not know the way that you can change people's lives by simply loving them with the love of Christ. I'm so grateful. It's also, um, it's also a Pasadena Point Loma story. Uh, this was my college before I ever came here. It was my college because I was raised in the church and this Pasadena college before it moved down to Point Loma was our college. It was always the sense. But it's also, it was also my college because it began to um, indirectly shaped me when I was seven years old and my eldest brother Ken enrolled as a freshman. Two years later, my brother Russ enrolled. Two years after that, my sister Susan enrolled. Um, I had two sisters who chose not to go, uh, but, but uh, I was being indirectly influenced by this place in the stories they brought home, in the professors they told me about, in the way that they talked about their faith being deepened in what they were learning. My sister Susan graduated in 1975, which gave uh, my, my parents a couple years of break of tuition payments. 
<laughs> and the faculty a, a couple years of break to prepare for me, which probably wasn't long enough. Um, so when I arrived in 1977 as a freshman, I, this place already felt like home. Already felt like home. I'm so grateful. I wear the Loma First pin signifying that I'm a first-generation college student because my parents didn't go to college. My dad dropped out of high school to join the Navy and serve in World War II, finished high school at night. My mom finished high school but didn't pursue any education past that. But I should probably have an asterisk on mine that says, yeah, first-generation, but, right? Preceded by three siblings, a place that felt like home. So when I got here, uh, this place began to shape me directly. Um, it gave me leadership opportunities that I could not have imagined through involvement in ASB, through involvement as a RA. Is there a picture? Do you have that picture? Hendricks Hall, there it is. So, so much brown hair, so much brown hair. This is the front desk at Hendricks. Uh, we called it um, the box. Uh, I don't know, do you still call it the box? It didn't even have a full door. Does it have a full door at least now that you can walk? It had a half door. So you had to, you had to crawl in under the, under the half door or jump up over the counter. And you'll see that the state-of-the-art intercom system <laughs> that let you know if you're on you know, third floor someplace that uh, the, there was a call on the payphone in the hallway for you which you always hoped was a girl from across campus and never was. It was always your mom. It was always your mom calling about something. I like the fact that it says, we called it the box, except when you're there all weekend, because weekend duty used to be, you were an RA on duty from like Friday evening till Sunday night, all day Saturday. It's just brutal. So by the end of it, it, it was the pit. It was definitely the pit. One expression, I, it, it gave me such opportunities to understand servant leadership, gave me such an opportunity to, to recognize what it meant uh, to have a leadership opportunity with my peers. And it was not an opportunity to lord anything over them, it was an opportunity to serve. I gotta tell you, uh, that has been a lifelong message to me. And as I now, along with my teaching, am called upon to serve my colleagues on the faculty. I, I, I carry the lessons I learned as an undergraduate here. It's part of my faith story. It's part of my discipleship. It's part of why this place means so much to me. When I arrived, the faculty began to demonstrate to me um, a deep, deep discipleship to Jesus. I had encountered disciples all of my life, but now I encountered disciples who were willing to ask really hard questions about the meaning of life, about what it means to be human, about what it means to be a Christian, about the natural world, about society, about oppression, about freedom. And they didn't ask these questions in spite of their discipleship. They asked these questions because of their discipleship. They came to these questions because of their discipleship. That was so important to me. I've often used this phrase. It's from a great story by James Baldwin called Sonny's Blues. The, Sonny's a, a jazz pianist and the leader of the band that he's in is the bass player and um, he's coaxing Sonny into playing and then Baldwin writes these words that he was a witness to Sonny that deep water 
and drowning are not the same thing. And if I could sum up, that's what the faculty and staff provided for me uh, in, their, in their, their, their leadership in my life, what I've tried to pass on to others, that deep water and drowning are not the same thing. Chapter two, how my discipleship is expressed through my vocation as a teacher of American literature and American culture. First of all, uh, at some point in my life, I just fell in love with a good story well told. Uh, it was a combination of aptitude, you know, kind of what I was drawn to, and uh, probably the fact that I was the youngest child and spent a whole lot of time watching my older siblings and listening to their stories and watching my parents and listening to their stories. No one ever told me I should divide up the stories between ones called literature and, and other stories, and so I, ne I never did. It was like, didn't matter whether the story was told in a novel or in a comic book uh, or in a song or in a film, it didn't matter. They were all great stories well told. And so no one ever told me to separate them, so I didn't. Uh, so I spend as much, not, not as much time probably, but I spend time reading novels, I spend time reading short stories, I spend time listening to music, spend time watching Marvel movies. I know where your folks are gonna be tonight. Uh, Wakanda forever starts again. No one ever told me to divide up the story, so I didn't. No one told me to stop, so I didn't. Uh, and eventually, uh, someone started offering to pay me money to talk about the stories I was reading. And this seemed like a dream come true. Uh, so there it was. I went to graduate school and became a professor. It's a rather, through rather long odds, uh, the road led me back here uh, to the position of teaching American literature at Point Loma. It's so ridiculous that I have the job that I hoped to have when I went to graduate school. And I don't mean like I hope to be a lawyer and became a lawyer. It's like, no, I wanted to teach American literature at Point Loma, and I teach American literature at Point Loma. Ridiculous, uh, but, but an incredible blessing. Uh, can I just give a quick uh, preview day interlude here uh, to just the preview students and your families? Uh, here's what I deeply believe, that God has given you aptitude, that God has given you gifts, that God has given you a turn of mind, and he's asked you to be transformed by the renewing of that mind. If that mind leads you to major in a STEM discipline, wonderful. If that mind leads you to major in the humanities, trust God and go for it. Trust God and go for it. Um, I can tell you, I've taught literature students for a long time literature majors for a long time. Some of them are English ed, some of them are teaching high school English. A few have gone on to graduate school and do what I do at another college. But the vast majority of them are lawyers and healthcare professionals and therapists and pastors and librarians and a dramaturgist. They work for nonprofit organizations. They work in corporate America. I can tell you that their degree has served them well. And the statistics all bear this out. Job satisfaction, earning income, it's not limited by, to, for those who major in the humanities. If that's where God's calling you, if that's where God's leading you, don't hesitate, go for it, and trust God that if you pursue the desires of your heart, God will add, if you pursue the gospel, God will add everything that you need to your life. I deeply, deeply believe this. Okay. Uh, then the quarantine, the long months at home in 2020. 
lots of time to think. It hit me at a time when I was thinking about what in the world have I been doing with my life? <laughs> um, and I realized that um, that was this, that God led me to this wonderful verse in Philippians 3.20 that tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. The Apostle Paul is such a fascinating thing. He doesn't will be in heaven. It says our citizenship is in heaven. But the Apostle Paul did not surrender his citizenship in Rome when he proclaimed that his citizenship was in heaven. It was this kind of dual citizenship. How do I work this out? And I realized this had been what had been guiding so much of my teaching and so much of my scholarship, so much of my conversations with students. Because I teach American content almost exclusively to almost exclusively American students, I realized that I was trying to run these two conversations at once, and I believe deeply that if we read well, and if we read widely, it can make us better citizens. It can make us better Americans. It can free us from some of the worst inclinations um, that we have. I do not believe, I do not believe that America is a sacred place. I do not believe that Americans are a chosen people. God has one chosen people, it is the church. To believe anything else, I would argue, is idolatry. I do not believe that America, Americans are a chosen people in the way that the church is a chosen people. But when we are at our best, and we're not always at our best, when we are at our best, we have much to offer the world. Um, people throughout the centuries have sought this place out as a place of freedom, greater freedom than they have in the place where they were living, greater opportunity. When we are at our best, we offer that beacon to people. It's a secular work. It's not having to do with God's kingdom, but it's a good thing. It's really a good thing. We can give the world a great deal. We've given the world a great deal. Jazz, rock and roll, baseball. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, one of my American heroes, says it better than I can say it. Let me read this. I fought my whole life, studied, played, worked, because I wanted to hear and know the whole story, my story, our story, and understand as much of it as I could. I wanted to understand in order to free myself of its most damaging influences, its malevolent forces, to celebrate and honor its beauty, its power, and to be able to tell it well to my friends, my family, and you. I don't know if I've done that, and the devil is always just a day away, but I know this was my young promise to myself, to you, this I pursued as my service. This I presented as my long and noisy prayer, my magic trick, hoping it would rock your very soul and then pass on its spirit rendered to be heard, read, sung, and altered by you and your blood that it might strengthen and help make sense of your story. That is what my discipleship has meant in a kind of a secular environment to try to help Americans listen to each other, to understand each other's stories so that we can be better neighbors to one another, better citizens. There's so much in our culture that tells us that we're supposed to fear each other as Americans, that we're somehow supposed to be angry at each other all the time. Oh, I guess I just wish we'd let, set that all behind us and listen to one another and work at being better citizens with one another. There's so much that works against us. There's so many of our political leaders across the political spectrum who want us to fear one another, to hate one another, to be afraid of one another. We don't have to do it. 
We do not have to do it. We can listen to one another's stories and be better Americans for it. I truly believe this. I also believe that reading stories can make me a better disciple because it can lead me to listen to my neighbor, to learn something about my neighbor's story. I have met in stories Americans that I could never meet in person, either because we are separated by years, because they have preceded me in this place, or because we are too separate, we're too different. But if I will listen to their stories, if I listen to the stories of the communities that formed them, I believe I have the potential to love them better, to love them in ways that they will ex experience as love, to know how to serve them better. So my discipleship, my discipleship is this, to try to run these two conversations simultaneously, always remembering that the highest calling is the call of the gospel, but also to know that there are, there are other goods to be done, other goods to be achieved beneath that, under that umbrella but to call my students through our conversations to a place where they can listen to one of their stories, listen to the stories of others, in order to be a better disciple, in order to love as we are called to love, as an expression of our love to God and our call to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. This is my calling. This is my discipleship. I don't know how much longer I'll keep doing this work. Um, I think I've got a few more semesters in me, but, uh, but it's not gonna be that much longer. I know at some point I'll have to turn this work over to somebody else, but I will do so with the confidence that God who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion, that they will answer the call that I have tried to answer, which is to take what has been entrusted to me and to pass it on to others. I'm so grateful that I've had this opportunity. Until then, until I turn it over to somebody else, you know where to find me. In my office in Bond, or sitting out on the campus mall reading, or in one of the classrooms. I'll be there, anxious to have conversations with you about what it means to be a part of this culture, what it means to be an American citizen, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, how to balance all those things together. It is a strange way to live my life. It's a strange way to make a living, talking about books for a living. But I'll take it until someone catches, until someone catches me and makes me do something else. As my colleague Bill Wood has said on more than one occasion, I teach for free and get paid really well to go to committee meetings. My teaching is that conversation, and I welcome it, I love it. I would welcome you uh, to participate in it. Can I offer you this um, benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter five? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame 
at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is the one who calls you, and God also will bring it to pass. Join with me in prayer as we say, Our most loving and gracious God, we are so thankful that you have gathered us together. I pray you would be in our conversations, that everything in all the ways we interact with one another, that you would be building us up to be more loving, to be more Christ-like, to be transformed into the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.